we're going to go ahead and get started. I know we uh, have we'll have a few people probably coming in a little late because uh, we have our lunch in today, and I'm sure they'll be dropping off some food. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, last week we heard from Mr. Ellis about this famous Alabama football story of it was a, a 1954 Cotton Bowl, I believe, and Alabama was playing Rice University. And there was a running back from Rice who broke free and was running down the sidelines heading for a touchdown. All of a sudden, this Alabama guy from the sidelines jumped off the bench, runs out there, tackles the guy, and he runs back onto the bench and tries to hide. And after the game, I believe the player's name was Forrest Gump, and, uh, and they asked him, Forrest, what were you thinking? He said, well, I don't know. I was just full of Alabama. Well, last week, I think Mr. Ellis was a little full of Alabama because he went a little, he covered more information than he was supposed to. So today, we're going to um, dive a little deeper. We're going to correct everything he said. <laughs> this, this Georgia boy is going to correct everything he said. <laughs> that is true. All right, so as we get started here, um, we are going to look at uh, Jephthah in a little bit deeper um, than we did last Sunday. So there's four things I want to try to cover this morning, and that is Jephthah the man, who he was, and two wrongs don't make a right, and then we'll look at you ain't from around here, are you? And then we're going to look at three blind mice. So, who was Jephthah, and what do we know about him? Who was Jephthah's father? Mr. Jephthah, that's right. Gilead was his father. So, Gilead was the grandson of Manasseh. And so, that makes Jephthah the great-grandson of Joseph. His mother was a prostitute. So, Jephthah was born Ill illegitimate. He was an outcast. He was a man that nobody wanted. He was rejected by his family. If you remember his brothers, when they came to age, they basically kicked uh, Jephthah out. He had to flee to Tob. And that, and putting in modern day English, that'd be kind of like having to leave your home now fleeing and moving to Alabama or something. So he had to survive on his own. He was a leader of a militia. And it tells us it was uh, worthless men came and, surrounded um, Jephthah. And I'm sorry, I should have, we're going to be in Je uh, Judges 11, and we'll start in verse 29 in just a few minutes. So the word worthless that's used to describe these fellows that hung around Jephthah is the same word that is used to describe the thugs that Abimelech hired to kill the sons of Gideon. They were vain, wicked men, and needless to say, Jephthah, had a pretty rough past or a pretty rough life at this point. But remember, the Judges teaches us that God uses people in various and sometimes terrible backgrounds to accomplish his will. We see that there are no stereotype heroes uh, for God. We think of others that had rough upbringings uh, that we read about in the, in the Bible. We think of Joseph who was sold by his brothers into slavery. We wanted to kill him, but they ended up selling him. We think of Moses, who was escaped death. Um, 
and Pharaoh's daughter, uh, he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, and he lived in Pharaoh's household, but yet he committed murder and had to flee, and then God used him in a mighty way to save his people. And we think of David. Remember, David was the youngest of his brothers, who uh, his dad didn't even think was, um, basically kind of forgot him when Samuel came looking for to anoint the king. And then David, when he was in Saul's house, was running for his life because Saul wanted to kill him. So here we see God using people with various backgrounds uh, for his glory. So that that kind of brings us up to speed for Jephthah. Now we see um, a conflict with the Ammonites who are preparing war against Israel. Israel is looking for a leader. And we know that they're not looking for a spiritual leader. They're looking for a military leader. They're looking for a commander that would go up against the Ammonites. So the elders of Gilead, they turned to Jephthah. And one commentator suggested that the elders of Gilead were probably Jephthah's brothers that had kicked him out earlier. So now they're having to go find Jephthah to come be their leader, their military leader. Notice how the sovereign hand of God is orchestrating all these events in Jephthah's life. He was born illegitimate. He had He was raised in his father's household because as the brothers got old enough and realized um, that he would be part of the inheritance, they kick him out and he has to flee. And then he has to be, he's rejected and he's living out in Tob and it's surrounded by worthless men. So we see the hand of God working through all these things through Jephthah's life. And that kind of, that illustrates to us that when life gets tough and you feel down and out, maybe even worthless, don't ever think that your life is worthless or meaningless. God is using these times to mold and shape you as he did Jephthah so that he can use you later in life to minister to others going through similar things or to strengthen your faith so that you would look to God for your strength. So remember, no matter what your background, God can use you in mighty ways. It may be as simple as the ordinary things of life or as grand as saving a nation. But nothing is impossible with God. So another thing we know about Jephthah is that he put his trust in, in the Lord. And how do we know this? Well, obviously we know this because he made the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 34. And I've asked uh, Stephen if he would read that for us. Hebrews 11, 32 through 34. This is Hebrews. Thank you. So here we see he's made the hall of faith. He has made, been made strong in his weakness, and he's been made mighty in war and put armies to flight. But we can also look in verse 9 in chapter 11, where Jephthah says to the, Gilead, the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and listen, and the Lord gives them into my hand, over to me, I will be your head. And then also in verse 11, it tells us that Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mitzvah. And then later, we'll look at a little bit, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 3, he tells the Ephraimites, he tells that the Ephraimites, 
that the Lord gave the Ammonites into my hands. So here we see Jephthah giving credit to the Lord. He's putting his faith and his life into the hands of the Lord. So he has the faith. It tells us that he is trusting God's sovereignty and he is putting his trust and his faith in the Lord. Jephthah knows who's really in control and who is actually ordaining all that's happening. So we see that the elders of Gilead and Jephthah come to an agreement and they return to Mitzvah where the elders and the people make Jephthah the head and leader over them. But one of the things that it kind of struck me when I was reading through this in the verse we just read when it says, if you take me home again. So Jephthah has a longing for home. He's, he's telling his, the elders of Gilead, if you take me home again. Which I think that you know, tells us a little bit about that there was a longing to be home for Jephthah. Then we see a diplomatic attempt of Jephthah to avoid war. Jephthah is well versed in the scriptures and the history of Israel. Some will use this as an argument that his vow that he makes is not a rash vow. We'll get into the vow in just a minute. Um, but th through God's sovereignty, Jephthah knew how to use biblical truths. And where did he learn this? Well, we, we surmise that he learned this while he was living in the household of Gilead, his, dad, his father, before he was kicked out. We can follow the example of Jephthah when we are challenged, we can use scripture and always stand on the word of God. God's word is not designed to tickle the ears, remember, but it is to expose hypocrisy and to declare the truth. So that's Jephthah the man. And we're getting ready to get into our scripture verses today, 11, chapter 11, verses 29 through 40. But before we read the scriptures, let's pray and ask the Lord's illumination on our scripture this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that your scripture shows us the good, the bad, and ugly. The, it does not hide anything. It is truthful. It exposes um, our weaknesses, our sins. And Father, we can learn from this. And we pray this morning as we look at Jephthah and his, as you have ordained him to be the judge for Israel, that... Um, we can pull out truths this morning for us that we can live by. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to start in verse 29, and we're going to read through verse 40 right now. This is Judges 11. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed on to Mitzvah of Gilead. And from Mitzvah of Gilead he passed on to the Amorites. Ammonites, sorry. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Kahamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. 
And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And, he, and she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So think about this scene. Jephthah, he tried diplomacy, but the king of the Ammonites did not want to talk, so there was war was intimate. But the Spirit of God was upon him. To arms, to battle. Jephthah's adrenaline must have been pumping overtime and folks getting psyched up for battle and psyched up for war. Have you ever been really excited or riding an emotional high and then you said something that you wish you hadn't? Or you said something without thinking? It just kind of pops out. I believe this is what happened to Jephthah. It, he makes this vow without much thought. And when we make a vow without much thought, Proverbs 20, 25 tell, gives us a little bit of indication what's going to happen. So Proverbs 20, 25. Right, so that's telling us that we should think before we make the vow. We should not make our vow rashly or uh, very quickly. So a vow in which Jephthah did not have to make, he was under no obligation to make this vow or any vow. It is like he began to doubt or let fear seep in and he needed to bargain with God. Basically saying, God, if you do this, if you give me victory, then I will do this which was whoever comes out, would I would offer as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. Vows are serious. And remember that it's better not to vow than to make a vow and not be able to pay it or not repay it. And vows also are clearly voluntary. And this Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23 tells us this. I forgot who had Deuteronomy 23, 21. Okay, thanks, Jeff. And then also in Ecclesiastes four, I mean sorry, five, four through five.
So here we have some scriptures that tell us that it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And it's also a voluntary. Jephthah had all he needed. He had the spirit of the Lord with him. So what is it, this vow that he makes? And we read in verses, in chapter 11, verses 30 through 31, that he would, whatsoever would come out and meet him when he returned from victory, he would offer to the Lord as a burnt sacrifice. So let's look at this vow a little bit. Let's consider a few things here. First of all, the wording of the vow that he says that he would offer a burnt offering is the same wording that God told Abraham when he offered up Isaac. You had Genesis 22, 1, 2, 2. And that same wording is you, that Jephthah uses when he talks about offering a burnt offering. Remember that burnt offerings refer to a blood sacrifice, which meant death. Something has to die. And whatsoever is a bad translation of the Hebrew. For Hebrew words, they have either feminine or uh, masculine type words that they use in Hebrew. And they don't have a what's called a neutered word like they or something that doesn't de depict male or female. And this word here should be translated, it was a masculine word, which should be translated, whosoever comes out of the house would not be offered as a burnt sacrifice. Also, we know that animals did not live in the houses, so it appeared that Jephthah was th not thinking about an animal, but yet he was thinking about a person. And if it was an animal, then it would not meet the requirements for the best animal to be sacrificed that God had had instructed of what animals are to be sacrificed. And offering a blemished animal would be an offense to God. So it appears that Jephthah is promising God that he would offer a form of human sacrifice. Most scholars believe that this is what the text is telling us. So what does the Bible say about human sacrifices? And here we're going to look at a few verses. Leviticus 18, uh, 21, and 20, 1 through 5. It seems pretty clear what God thinks about human sacrifice. And then we also have Deuteronomy 12, 31. 
And then we have always have Exodus 20, verse 13. Does anybody know what we find in Exodus 20? Exactly. Thou shalt not kill. So here, we've already seen that Jephthah has knowledge of Scripture and biblical truths. So why would Jephthah make a, such a foolish vow? One reason might be because he did not know the whole word of God or the whole counsel of God and what God said about human sacrifice. He knew some parts of Scripture, but not all parts of Scripture. Another reason might be that being that he was living in a pagan culture, in a pagan nation, is that Israel was acting like pagans, that he adopted some of the pagan practices. If he did not mean human sacrifice, then why did he use the words, whosoever would come out of my house, and then also used burnt offerings? Why did he use those? So just something to think about. The vow was not only a rash vow, but it was an unbiblical vow. And as Dale Ralph Davis suggests, we must believe the most natural reading of this text. So here we have sin number one, first wrong. And this should be a warning to us. It illustrates that you can be a godly person who has been richly blessed and still make bad decisions or make a bad choice. We get carried away in our zeal or caught up in the excitement and our wicked, sinful, selfish nature can still come out. This is where we need self-control. This is where we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is where we need the Word of God in our lives. And we need to be well-versed in the Scriptures. If we do not stay in the Word, then we too can make foolish and wicked choices. So on to victory, though. We have um, Jephthah going to, victory, going to battle, and victory is his. And God gave him a mighty victory. If you look at verse 32, it tells us that he crossed over and he fought, and then the Lord gave them into his hand. There were 20 cities that were captured, and God gave back a majority of the promised land. It was a complete victory over the Ammonites. One commentator mentioned that it was such a solid defeat that the Ammonites never really challenged Israel again. But notice that the author only gives us one verse, verse 33, about the battles and the victory. Wouldn't you think that such a mighty victory as this would deserve more of the scriptures? Don't we want to see how the hand of God's providence just uh, won the victory and how Jephthah and the men uh, valiantly uh, fought and won? Well, the author of Judges does not tell us all the details. And as with scriptures... We don't know. We can't, we don't understand or don't know what all the victories and all the battles. But instead, he chooses to concentrate on the vow. He chooses to concentrate on the ramifications of such a vow. So here we have this scene again where Jephthah comes home. He comes home a hero and a champion of Israel. And there should have been excitement and celebration. And there was at first because we see the daughter coming out with uh, tambourines and, and dancing. And where do we? When we think of that, who do we think about where we first saw that in Scripture? Mary and Wright coming out in our After the Red Sea adventure um, episode. So, right, so we see this celebration, and we read in verse 34 through 36 that he came home, and she came out with uh, dancing, and it was his only child. And then when he saw her, he was sad and sorrow. He ripped his clothes. That was a sign of 
a major grief in, in the Old Testament, where there should have been great joy and celebration, but instead we have great sorrow and mourning. Jephthah never dreamed that it would be his daughter that would be the first to come out and meet him. But Jephthah understood the seriousness of his vow. He understood, and so did his daughter. This also tells us a little bit about their faith and commitment to the Lord. And one could argue that she serves as an example of loyalty and, and submission, that she should be praised and that she should be emulated. But actually, you think about it, she is culpable in this sin. We are to be submissive to, the, to our authorities, unless what? Exactly, unless it goes against God's word and God's standards. So let's read on in verses 37 to 40. So he said to her, so she said to her father, let this, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companion. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed and she and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to the vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now here we get to where there's a, a debate of whether he actually followed through with this vow to actually sacrifice his daughter as a burnt offering. Or, and this is where the debate comes in, did he just dedicate her to life, life lifelong um responsibility in the tabernacle some argue that this was actually a sacrifice to remain an unmarried virgin dedicated to a life of the lord's service they go on to argue that since there is such so much emphasis on the fact that she was a virgin and that she wants to mourn her virginity and not her death then the vow had to be a promise of celibacy right well as i was listening to uh some sermons um I ran across this one sermon of a pastor who argued that this is the case, that it was actually a dedication. But I want you to listen to his reasoning here. And remember that this pastor admits that the Hebrew should have read whoever. And he admits that Jephthah was thinking of a human sacrifice. He said this is um, pretty much a... What he says, when thinking about Jephthah through the lens of Hebrews 11, the roll call of, faith, of the faithful, a model of true faith, be careful what you think of Jephthah. How in the world could a man who was raised up by God to be the savior of his people, leading Israel in the path of obedience, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, how could he ever agree to sacrifice his own daughter? Surely a man of true faith could not obligate himself to offer up a human sacrifice, and especially his own daughter. This is absurdity, a total contradiction, because Jephthah knew the Bible. He knew that a sinful human being would not be acceptable to a holy God. How can a true man of faith do such a thing? He knew better. He knew his Bible. His knowledge contradicts that he would even think to do this. This is, this is key right here. This is inconceivable to me. Let me tell you what I think. And if that's the argument 
that it's inconceivable to me to think that this could happen. If we take that same argument and apply it to David, King David, a man after God's own heart, who was raised and saved and protected, how could he commit adultery? How could he commit murder? It's inconceivable to me. So it must not have happened. So if we take that same argument and apply it there, but we know that with wicked men, anything is conceivable. Also, he would go on to say that Jephthah, what he really meant was he meant that he was going to serve, uh, offer one of his servants up to the Lord or dedicate his servant to the Lord for lifelong service in the tabernacle. And then this pastor went on to say another part of his argument was the fact that the daughters of Israel would come back and lament with Jephthah's daughter those four days for that celebration for the celebration or the not celebration but the the memory of of what happened i looked in several translations and i could not find the word with so matthew henry goes on to say well how can they come back to uh, commemorate with her if she's dead so there is no word with so that i could find we do not know what jephthah was thinking Another commentator suggested that he knew about Abraham and Isaac, and he might have been hoping that the Lord would come and stop him as he did for Abraham. But how sad that Jephthah knew Scripture and completely placed his life in the hands of, of God, but he did not understand the grace of God. Let's look at Leviticus 5, verses 4 through 6. So if someone had Leviticus 5, 4 through 6. And if we read on in that chapter, which it gets kind of long, the Lord makes provisions that if the if the person cannot afford the offering that was just mentioned, then there was provisions of other offerings that the person could repent and offer to be able to be released from that vow or be uh, repented from that vow. Also in Leviticus chapter 27 gives us instruction on anyone who makes a special vow to the Lord involving a person, then there are provisions on how to redeem that person. And Matthew Henry goes on to say about the daughter, she, he says, besides, had she, the daughter, only been confined to a single life, she needed not to have desired these two months to bewail in it. She had her whole life before her to do that. If she saw, if she saw cause, nor needed she to take such a, a sad leave of her companions. And Matthew Henry gives us five things to consider about this passage. One, there still may be doubt and distrust even in the hearts of true and great believers. Two, vows should be about the advancement of God's glory or the furtherance of ourselves in his service. Number three, we must be cautious and use discretion and be well advised when we're making vows we must not be led by emotions 
or our zeal. And then four, we must understand our obligation in the vows that we are making and be willing and ready to fulfill the vows according to God's law. And we must submit to the honor of God. Most scholars condemn Jephthah for making this vow. He sinned in making the vow and worse in following through with the vow. We can't be bound by a sinful vow. We cannot be bound by a sinful vow, which God forbids. So here we have sin number two, or wrong number two. So we have two wrongs. And we know that two wrongs don't make a right. This passage also teaches us the importance to surround ourselves with godly counsel. Oh, how different this story would have been if someone had pointed out to Jephthah about the grace of God and the mercy of God that he has provided for us to repent, to seek forgiveness, and appeal to the mercy of God. Or if Jephthah's daughter would have pointed out that a human sacrifice is contrary to God's law. So that's we have uh, two wrongs don't make a right. Now let's look at the next crisis from you ain't from around here, are you? And here we see the Ephraimites, after the battle was won and Jephthah came home and he just dealt with uh, the situation with his daughter, the Ephraimites are a jealous tribe, an envious tribe. They were powerful, they were large, and very, very prideful. And we saw this earlier when uh, Ephraimites came to Gideon and they confronted Gideon. But what did Gideon do? Gideon was able to uh, talk to them and kind of appease them. Gideon was a little bit more of a meek and mild person compared to Jephthah. So they confront Jephthah and they rebuke him. And Jephthah did not stand for this. He quickly acted. Well, actually, I'm sorry. He, he responded saying that I called for you. You did not come. And so he took his life in his own hand and the Lord gave the Ammonites to him. And then they started slandering Jephthah, calling him names. Um, if we look at uh, verse uh, chapter uh, 12, verse uh, 1 through 6, um, they're asking, why did you cross over to fight with them without us? Uh, they were going to burn their uh, Jephthah's house with Jephthah in the house. Um, and Jephthah said to them in verse 2, I and my people a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over to the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to, to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. So I guess if you really wanted to insult somebody, call him a fugitive of Ephraim and the Gileadites. And so what did that, um, how did Jephthah respond in verse 5? The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when they were fugitives, uh, and any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over. The men of Gilead said, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. So again, we have brother and brother. And the only way they really could distinguish them is how they talked and how they could say either Shibboleth or they couldn't. They had said Sibboleth. 
And as Parks mentioned several weeks ago, Israel is destroying itself from within. Yes, we had the Ammonites, and Jephthah went and defeated them, and it was a great victory. But then we have the Ephraimites, their brothers, coming and trying to rebuke them. And how often is it that we see this in churches today where we have the infighting? We have enough conflict from the outside. We have enough attack from the outside that we don't need to be attacking each other on the inside. And we see Israel being destroyed. Matter of fact, Ephraim, one commentator said Ephraim was so destroyed that day that they really did not have any more influence um, in Israel from that point on. Also, we see Ephraim really challenging uh, Jephthah as the judge. And when you're challenging God's ordained leader, judge, what are you actually doing? You're challenging God. And I have to admit, when I first, I always thought that Jephthah should have stopped when he defeated the Ephraimites. He should have stopped there. That was enough. Then when he captured the fords of the river, and then he slaughtered, there was 42,000 more men slaughtered. I always thought that was, he went a little bit too far into revenge. But actually doing some of the study, we don't really know if it was Jephthah's revenge or was it God's judgment on the Ephraimites for challenging Jephthah as the judge? You remember in, in Moses' day, there was a group that challenged Moses and his leadership, said, who made you leader over us? Who was that? Do you remember? That was Korah's rebellion. What happened to Korah and his men? Swallowed up. That was judgment. So is this, this question is not really answered for us in the scriptures. Is this a judgment of God on the Ephraimites? Or was it revenge? I don't know. Um, I'll leave that to you to, to wrestle with. But the bottom line is through God's providence, this, this happened. And God uses it to his glory. But we do, it does teach us this also, that pride comes before destruction and a hearty spirit before a fall. Jephthah, then it goes in telling us, verse 7, that Jephthah rules six, long, six more years, and then he died and was buried in the city of Gilead. Then the last section here, and we'll kind of move quickly because I'm running out of time here, the three blind mice. We have the three leaders, or three judges of Israel. I'll just read through this real quick. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside of the clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside of his son, for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Isban died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died, and he was and was buried at Agilon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon the son of Hillel the Parathonite judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons, and he rode on he rode on seventy donkeys and judged Israel eight years. And Abdon the son of Hillel the Parathonite died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. <laughs> so here we have three judges, three minor judges. And remember David told us it's not minor as in significance, but it's minor as in because we only have a few verses that tell us about them. 
But we can gather uh, a couple of things from this. So Ibzan first ruled seven years. His quiver was full with 30 sons and 30 daughters, which means he probably had many wives. He had numerous alliances outside of, of the clan, and he brought in wives from outside the clan for his sons. And he saw that every child was married. So here we see he continued on with the sinful nature of Israel and rejecting the Lord. We have Elon, who ruled 10 years. For 40, the, we surmise that the 40 years of the Philistines' oppression began, began under Elon's rule. And possibly Samson was born during Elon's rule. And then we have Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, which gives us a little bit of uh, lineage. He ruled eight years. He also had a quiver full of 40 sons and 30 grandsons. It is noted that they rode on donkeys. This was a sign of importance, like a judge or an officer riding on donkeys. So we have these three judges. But as the author reminds the reader, these are all but just mere men. They all died and were buried. They all had tombstones or memorials. But the one true Savior of his people, there is no tombstone or memorial, because Christ is alive and reigning and seated at the right hand of the Father who intercedes for us. The only human sacrifice that pleased the Lord was his perfect, spotless son, Jesus Christ. This was the only sacrifice that makes it possible for us, sinners, to approach the throne room of grace, and God offers complete forgiveness. We must not take this for granted, for if we do, we can find ourselves in a similar situation as we just read about. So a few applications. that Not knowing the scriptures is very dangerous. Because we do not, it is important that we surround ourselves with godly counsel. We can't make it on our own. We can't be a, ma a maverick Christian. We may think we're mature Christians and we can make it on our own, but we can't. We need godly counsel. We, need, we have an obligation to help each other in living out our, our lives. And that's where the body of Christ is, why the body of Christ is so important. When we make vows to the Lord, we must take them very seriously. If we do make a rash vow or a rash promise, our gracious God has made provisions and we need to repent and seek God's grace and mercy. And as we grow in our knowledge, we must stay focused in the word so we don't make foolish and rash decisions or choices. And as we continue our um, studying Judges, Lord willing, next week, uh, we will be introduced into Samson. But if you look at the first verse in chapter 13, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we continually see that cycle. Continually see that cycle. So we saw, we talked about Jephthah, the man. We talked about two wrongs don't make a right. By the way, do you know what two rights make? Anybody? No? Two, two rights make an airplane. And if you don't, Understand it, let me know afterwards or we'll, we'll but we saw two rights don't make two wrongs don't make a right. We saw um you ain't from around here, are you? And then we also looked at the three minor judges. Any questions before we close? You would you would think, and that's the some of the argument that 
surely he knew. Surely somebody, exactly, or somebody would have told him. So, you know, again, we don't know, but it does illustrate to us the importance of being receptive when we somebody does come to us and say, yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right. Let me close this with prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that you do not hide anything in your word, that you give us enough to understand your grace and your mercy. Father, we pray that uh, this morning as we learned about your servants that uh, we can learn from their mistakes, their sin, that uh, we can uh, glean from that. And now, Father, as we prepare our hearts to worship you, we ask that our worship, we pray that our worship will be acceptable to you. We pray that your word would come forth in a mighty way and change our lives to be more like Christ. Help us to apply your word to our to our lives. Father, we thank you for this body of believers that are committed to your word, and we thank you that uh, we can come to each other and be able to talk about these things and learn from each other. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah.